we have Georgia taking on Alabama. And one of the biggest games being played this college football season. This game is going to be taking place 8 p.m. Eastern time on CBS. We're going to see Georgia, who has the best defense in college football, matched up against Alabama, who, in my opinion, has the best offense in college football. Who is going to prevail? Now, Georgia last week defeated Tennessee 44-21. And Tennessee, to their credit, played a really good game in the first half. But after halftime, Georgia's defense flipped on the switch and said, hey, no more. And they completely shut down Tennessee's offense in the second half of that game. I mean, Tennessee couldn't get anything going. The passing game couldn't get going. The run game couldn't get going. Georgia's defense for several turnovers. They beat up Tennessee up front, which is really hard to do because Tennessee has one of the better offensive lines in college football, which makes it even more impressive. I mean, Georgia's defense just dominated in every single phase of that game. I mean, up front, they wrecked Tennessee. Their secondary played well. I mean, Georgia's defense just completely had a shutdown performance against Tennessee. And Tennessee, in my opinion, is a really good football team this year. I mean, look at how they played in the first half of that game. But Georgia's defense came through for them. And I mean, Georgia's defense was a big reason why they were able to defeat Tennessee. And for Alabama, they just got out of a shootout against Ole Miss last week, led by head coach Lane Kiffin. Now... It was a lot of speculation that Ole Miss, led by Lane Kiffin, was going to be able to put up a lot of points on Alabama. But I didn't expect them to have the performance they had offensively against Alabama. I mean, they, I mean, Alabama, Ole Miss combined for what? A million yards combined of total offense, and they scored almost a million bajillion points combined. So, I mean, Alabama was able to win that game some way, somehow, because I didn't think it was going to stop. I did not think the scoring was going to stop at all. But finally, some way, somehow, Alabama was able to close the coffin on Ole Miss in that offense. And I have a question about Alabama's defense. Because we know how good Alabama's offense is with Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle. You got Mac Jones, who I believe is a dark horse to win the Heisman Trophy this season, and Najee Harris. But my question lies with Alabama's defense. Now, I don't really know what to think about Alabama's defense. I don't know if Alabama's defense was just, you know, they just were playing against a Lane Kiffin-led Ole Miss offense that just happens to be really good, which this is the same Ole Miss offense that put up 600 yards against Florida, even though I don't know how much of an achievement that is because Florida's defense has been pretty lackluster. So I don't know if it was just Ole Miss or if Alabama's defense is a little bit concerning or a little bit questionable okay so I don't really know which one to believe I'm going to say the fact that Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin having some familiarity with Nick Saban in that Alabama defense was able to take advantage of it and I don't really think we're going to see another Alabama defensive performance like that for the rest of the season okay I would just like to think that Ole Miss had Alabama's number offensively and that's why I think Alabama's defense didn't perform all that great against that Lane Kiffin Ole Miss offense. But hey, Ole Miss has pretty much done that to every single opponent they face so far this season. So for Alabama, are they going to be able to stop the rain game of Georgia? Now, Georgia's offense has been pretty balanced, okay? Their offense is based on the rain game, okay? Because listen, 
I'm pretty sure that Georgia wants to run the football to win this game. They don't want to have to rely on their quarterback, Stetson Bennett, to win this game for them, okay? They want Stetson Bennett to, you know, make plays when he has to, but they don't want to overly rely on Stetson Bennett to have to throw the ball 35, 40 times to win this game, okay? So if you're Alabama, you need to stop this run game of Georgia, okay? Because Georgia wants to run the ball to win games, okay? They don't want to, like I said, they don't want to overly rely on Stetson Bennett. They don't want to have to rely on him to win the game for you. So if you're Alabama, if you take away the run game, then you force Georgia to have to beat you through the air, okay? Now, Georgia has a pretty good group of wide receivers. You got Pickens and you got Kyrus Jackson, who has also been really good as well, okay? But you do still have Stetson Bennett at quarterback, okay? And Stetson Bennett has played fairly well. But if this game ends up being a shootout, I don't know how much I would trust Stetson Bennett in this game if this game ends up being a shootout okay so i mean stetson bennett i know he's played fairly well not a knock on stetson bennett i just question what would happen if georgia isn't able to have success running the football and they have to rely on the passing game to win now another question is going to be who is going to win this game up front and in particular is georgia's defensive line going to get the best of alabama's offensive line because georgia's defensive line has pretty much wrecked everybody they played so far this season. I mean, they dominated Auburn's offensive line. They dominated Auburn up front. They dominated Tennessee up front in the second half of that game. And I want to be able to see if they're going to be able to have that same success up front that they've had in the last previous games they played against Alabama this week. Because Alabama has a pretty doggone good offensive line. And if you want to beat Alabama, you have to disrupt the passing game with Mac Jones and these wide receivers, okay? And if you give Mac Jones all day in the pocket, he is going to kill you. He's going to pick apart your defense one by one. And these Alabama wide receivers, you don't want to allow them to, you know, just be able to get these one-play big touchdowns when they're having, like, these 70-yard touchdown receptions and things like that. So a good way to stop that is by getting pressure on Mac Jones and force Mac Jones to get the ball out fast instead of giving him all day to throw and allow these wide receivers to get all of these big plays in the passing game downfield. So if you're Georgia, you want to force Mac Jones to get the ball out fast. I also want to see... How is Najee Harris going to perform in this game? Because last week he had 23 carries for 206 rushing yards. He was averaging 9 yards per carry. And he had 5 touchdowns. Now, obviously, I doubt he's going to have that same performance that he had against Ole Miss against Georgia's defense. Okay? But I want to see how is Najee Harris going to perform against Georgia in his defensive line. Which all goes to the question that I asked before. Is Georgia going to be able to dominate Alabama's offensive line up front? And that's really where this game is going to lie, okay? Whoever is able to win up front and is able to win the line of scrimmage is going to win this game. Because at the end of the day, I know a lot of people are going to make this all about the playmakers. Everybody's going to talk about Stetson Bennett versus Mac Jones. Can Stetson Bennett be able to keep up these Georgia wide receivers versus the secondary of Alabama? These Alabama wide receivers matched up against Georgia's secondary. But it seems like a lot of people forget that football is a game that no matter how many great players you have at quarterback or at the skill position, it is a game that is won and lost in the trenches. Okay, look at how 
Tennessee got defeated by Georgia last week. Georgia dominated Tennessee up front at the line of scrimmage in the second half of that game. That's why Georgia won that game. Georgia dominated Auburn at the line of scrimmage up front in that game, the whole entire game. So, I mean, that just goes to show you that a lot of people in this day and age of college football always like to make it about the skill position players. But football is still a game that is won and lost up front based on who wins the battle at the line of scrimmage, okay, so I mean, I don't know about, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a football fanatic, and one thing that I love watching about football is the line of scrimmage, okay, even though I am a former wide receiver, and I'm all about offense, and I'm all about seeing these wide receivers, and all about watching what these quarterbacks are able to do, I'm still a fan of what takes place on the line of scrimmage. And whoever is able to win that battle on the line is going to win this game. Now for Alabama, you cannot afford to turn the football over against Georgia. Because they are going to make you pay. Now Georgia's offense, when they were able to get a couple of turnovers last week against Tennessee, I mean... They were able to take advantage of it. They came off with points. So if you're Alabama, you do not want to turn the football over to Georgia. Because when you have a team like Georgia, that basically the strength of their team is defense, they feed off that, okay? And Georgia is able to convert all of those turnovers into points the majority of times. So, I mean, I think it's really important that Alabama makes sure that they take care of the football. You don't want to get the football back to Georgia, especially if Georgia's able to get that run game going against Alabama's defense. They're going to be able to get the ball back and take some more time off the clock, which is what Georgia wants to do. They want to control the line of scrimmage, and they want to control the time possession battle. They want to chew up all the time left on the clock, so, I mean, for Alabama, I think turning the football over in this game could put them in a little bit of a disadvantage. Because when you look at how successful Georgia has been running the football, you don't want to get into a battle when Georgia's just completely getting extra possessions and running the football, taking time off the clock. So, I mean, for Alabama, this is going to be the toughest game that they're going to play this season, at least from a regular season standpoint, until the college football playoffs and things like that. So, I mean, now it comes down to making my prediction, who is going to win this game? I'm going to take Alabama to win this game. And here's why I'm going to take Alabama to win this game. You see, Georgia still, although they do have new offensive coordinator, this is a smash mouse team, okay? Now, I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, Stetson Bennett can do damage in the past game. Listen, like I said earlier, Georgia doesn't want to rely on Stetson Bennett to win the game for them. They want to win the game by relying on their defense to create turnovers and to get stops, and they want to rely on the running game to win games. Stetson Bennett isn't Georgia's way of winning football games, okay? But I think that Alabama is going to be able to pull off the victory some way, somehow, because Nick Saban has never lost to a former assistant of his, and I think that Nick Saban is going to be able to stop this run game of Georgia. And eventually, Stetson Bennett is going to have to step up and win this game for Georgia, which I don't really think he's going to be able to do. And a lot of Georgia fans may get upset with that, and I can understand why, but it really isn't a game that Georgia has been put in a situation that you have to rely on Stetson Bennett to go out and make some clutch throws for you to win the game, okay? I don't think this is going to be a game that necessarily... Georgia is going to dominate by running the football down Alabama's throat. Like, Stetson Bennett is going to have to play a game that 
is going to be heavily relied depending on his performance. Okay, so I mean, when you look at teams that have these math mouth um, offenses that are predicated on running the football, they don't really do all that great against a team like Alabama because to be Alabama, you have to be dynamic in the passing game as well. And I simply don't think that Georgia's offense is to the point that they're going to be able to keep up with Alabama's offense. Now, I'm not saying that to disrespect Georgia's defense because I'm not expecting Alabama to hang 40 or 30 points on Georgia's defense. But all I am saying is that will Georgia's offense be able to do enough to win this game against Alabama? I don't think so. So I'm going to take Alabama to win this game 24 to 17 is my final score prediction in this game. I think Alabama is going to be able to do it. It's going to be able to get it done. I think Alabama with their offense, they're going to be able to have some big plays when they need them. And Georgia's defense is going to play good, but I think that Georgia's offense simply won't be able to do enough to win this game for Georgia, which is why I'm taking Alabama with the victory here. 24, I know I said 24 to 17, but I think Alabama wins 28 to 17 is my final score prediction in this game. So with that, Prescott undergoing surgery for that gruesome injury that he suffered a few days ago against the New York Giants. The question is, how good would the Dallas Cowboys be with Andy Dalton at the helm at quarterback? Now, Andy Dalton was really solid against the New York Giants this past Sunday. He was 9 of 11 for 111 passing yards. He looked really good. And I think that the Dallas Cowboys will still be able to make it to the playoffs with Andy Dalton, that quarterback. Now, is Andy Dalton, that Prescott? No, he's not. Because let's be honest, that Prescott has played really well this year. I know he's had some turnover issues and things like that, but that Prescott looked really good so far this season before the gruesome injury that he suffered a few days ago. But you bring in Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton was widely regarded before the season started as the best backup quarterback in the NFL. And Andy Dalton has had his fair share of criticism for what happened during his time in Cincinnati. A lot of people always say that Andy Dalton was never able to win the big game. But what Andy Dalton has proven during his NFL career and his time majority with the Cincinnati Bengals is that if you give him a good team with playmakers and, you know, a good offensive line, he can win you some games. Okay, so I mean, I think that the Dallas Cowboys have a really good chance of making it to the playoffs and winning this terrible NFC East division. Okay, and... As of right now, if I had to make a prediction on who would win the NFC East, it most likely probably would be the Dallas Cowboys. Because the thing with the Dallas Cowboys is that although their defense has been terrible, I mean, a lot of reasons why they lose their games is because of turnovers and too many costly penalties. So if Dallas would lower the amount of turnovers that they had and stop having so many penalties... They could easily be an undefeated team right now or at least have at least one or two losses. So, I mean, I think Dallas, even without that, Prescott has a really good chance of winning this division. I think Dallas has a 75% chance of winning this division. And the reason why I think Dallas has a 75% chance of winning this division, I'm basically saying that this is Dallas 
division to lose is because Philadelphia is just completely bombarded by injuries. By the time they get healthy, I don't know what their record is going to be. The Washington football team, they're just dysfunctional right now. We don't know what's going on with their quarterback situation. Their offensive line is terrible. They really can't get anything going on offense. Then you got the New York Giants. The New York Giants are in a rebuilding year right now. So I'm not really expecting all that much out of them. So, I mean, in my opinion, this is really Dallas division to lose. Despite the fact that how bad the defense has played, Dallas still has a really good chance of winning this division. Now, it may not be pretty. Dallas may end up winning this division going 7-9 or 8-8. But I do think that they are more than capable of winning this division. Now, in terms of will they make it far in the playoffs with Andy Dawn, I doubt it. I think if Dallas makes it to the playoffs, they pretty much will go 1-1. They may win a game, maybe, if they get lucky. But for the most part, Andy Dalton is going to be good enough to get the Dallas Cowboys to the playoffs. Because like Andy Dalton has shown during his time with the Cincinnati Bengals, when he's had a good team around him, like Dallas does. Dallas has Amari Cooper, Michael Gallo, C.D. Lamb. I mean, you have Ezekiel Elliott in the backfield. And you got Kellen Moore, who I don't know how a lot of you guys feel about Kellen Moore. But I think Kellen Moore has been exceptional as officer coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys this season. So you guys let me know how you guys feel about Kellen Moore. But I love the job that Kellen Moore has done so far with this Dallas Cowboys offense. And Andy Dalton looked really good against the New York Giants, albeit it was the New York Giants. But I mean, hey, I think that Andy Dalton is going to be good enough to get the Dallas Cowboys to the playoffs. And look, what you can expect out of Andy Dalton, you can expect a guy who... He's a guy who has a little bit of mobility, okay? He has some mobility. So, I mean, he's not just a sitting statue back there in the pocket. He has some mobility. Now, does he have the same athleticism that Dak Prescott possesses? No, he doesn't. But he does have a little bit of mobility to extend plays in the pocket if need be or pick up like three or four yards on the ground, okay? He has a pretty good arm. He's pretty accurate to football. His decision-making is... I think his decision-making is pretty good. If I had to rate his decision-making run through five, I think his decision-making will be a three out of five. So, I mean, the knock on Andy Dawson, the fact that he's not, isn't the fact that he's not a good quarterback. The knock on Andy Dawson, the fact that if he doesn't have a good team around him, he isn't a team, he isn't a quarterback that can carry you, okay? He's not a quarterback that's going to win you the big games and the playoffs, but he is a quarterback that is pretty steady, and he can get you to the playoffs if you have a good team around him, and that's what the Dallas Cowboys have, at least from an offensive standpoint. Now, this defense on the other end, that's a completely different story, okay? But I think Andy Dawn will be good enough to get the Dallas Cowboys to the playoffs. Now, one thing that people may say about Andy Dawn is the fact that, oh, JT, he's a backup quarterback for a reason. And that is true, okay? But, I mean, you got to look at it. If Andy Dalton was traded or released by the Cincinnati Bengals earlier on, maybe he could potentially be a starting quarterback somewhere else if he was given opportunity before the Cincinnati Bengals released him or things like that. Or they actually traded him before the NFL draft. So, I mean, listen, I think that Andy Dalton will be able to get Dallas to the playoffs. I think Dallas should still be a pretty good team, at least on the offensive side of the football. Now, their defense is still going to be a big concern heading in through the rest of the season. But, I mean, even despite with their defense playing as bad as it has so far, I still think with how weak this division is, Dallas can still win this division. This is the Dallas Cowboys division to lose because the Eagles aren't competitive. Washington can't get anything going on offense. Their offense doesn't even have a post right now. And the Giants are the New York Giants. So I think Andy Dunn will be good enough to get the Cowboys to the playoffs and he will be able to get the job done for Dallas. I think that it is time for the New York Jets 
to trade Le'Veon Bell. Because Le'Veon Bell experiment with the New York Jets has not worked out. It's been nothing but a drama saga. And it's really confusing. And a lot of things that's going off Le'Veon Bell and the New York Jets simply doesn't make any sense to me. So apparently Le'Veon Bell is upset with his lack of usage and the New York Jets offense. He went on Twitter. He liked a couple of tweets about his usage in the offense and about a potential trade. And this isn't the first time that these rumors have popped up about Le'Veon Bell not being okay with his role in the Jets offense. I believe there were similar rumors about Le'Veon Bell's role or lack of involvement in the Jets offense dating back to last season, if I recall. But I mean, for Le'Veon Bell to be upset about his lack of usage so far this season doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Okay, because this guy just came off an injury. So naturally, in the NFL, when you have a guy that's fresh off an injury, you don't want to fully just rush them back and give them 25, 30 touches. Like, you want to ease them back into the game, okay? So I don't really understand why Le'Veon Bell would be upset with that. Because obviously his workload is going to increase the more he continues to play. But I just think that there's just more to it than just his lack of usage in the offense. Because I think he understands that when you come off an injury, you just don't say, hey, give me 35, 30 touches. Like, you have to get eased back into that role, okay? They don't want to have to give Le'Veon Bell too much and then risk getting him injured again. Which is why I said earlier that I think that it is time for the Jets to part ways with Le'Veon Bell because this whole thing is just really confusing and doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. On top of that, why would the New York Jets continue to pay a guy so much money if you don't know how to properly utilize him, okay? The New York Jets only have one reliable option in the passing game, and that is wide receiver Jamison Crowder, who I believe has been playing like a Pro Bowler this year. If the New York Jets do not get Jamison Crowder to the Pro Bowl this year, I will be extremely disappointed, okay? Because with the performance that Jamison Crowder has put up so far this season, I think he deserves to be in the Pro Bowl this season if he continues up his performance. But I mean, I think that Le'Veon Bell should be utilized more in the passing game. And I think that hopefully if Adam Gates is able to, or even has a brain cell to utilize Le'Veon Bell in the passing game, this could potentially help out the New York Jets offense because Le'Veon Bell was an all-pro halfback with Pittsburgh, not only because he was a great runner, but because what he was able to do in the passing game, he was one of the few halfbacks that you could actually line up and he could be your second or third best wide receiver on your team. So, I mean, I can understand why Le'Veon Bell is upset, but I still can't understand why he's upset. Like, I know he wants to be more involved in the offense. Like, we even saw rumors about this last year. But, I mean, you're just coming off an injury, dude. Like, slow down. Like, they have to ease you back into the flow of the game. You get what I'm saying? So, I mean... I think that it's time for the New York Jets to part ways with Le'Veon Bell and, and just to go ahead and trade him. And I know New York Jets fans are going to be like, oh, JT, we can't trade him because we're not going to get anything in return. Like, at this point, you don't really have a choice because it looks like Le'Veon Bell simply doesn't like Adam Gase and he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to play for the New York Jets and he doesn't want to play with Adam Gase because, I mean, this isn't the first instance of Le'Veon Bell being at odds with Adam Gase. It was rumors about this going back to last season. About him and Adam Gase not getting along. About him wanting 
a bigger role in the offense. So this isn't the first merry-go-round of the Adam Gase and Le'Veon Bell drama. This is basically Adam Gase, Le'Veon Bell, and the New York Jets drama season two. So, I mean, if you're the New York Jets, man, I mean, if you're a team that's looking to rebuild the culture of your franchise, you have to get guys out that don't want to be there. And that may be sometimes having to bite the bullet and have to sometimes settle for less. Okay, Le'Veon Bell, you may feel like you're able to get a second round, a third round pick in return for Le'Veon Bell, but based on his production since he's been a New York Jets, has not really been all that great. Now, if Le'Veon Bell was playing at an all-pro level, like he was in Pittsburgh, then maybe you could have gotten like a second or first round pick for Le'Veon Bell, but Le'Veon Bell hasn't really looked all the same ever since he became a New York Jets. So, I mean, for the New York Jets, man... I think it's just time to give up on the Le'Veon Bell experiment. I don't really think it makes a lot of sense to keep him on the team because Adam Gates doesn't know how to use him. He's upset with his workload. Take him to a team that actually needs him, that could utilize him right now. So, I mean, for New York Jets, man, I just think it's time to part ways with Le'Veon Bell because he's one of the highest paid halfbacks in the NFL. You're paying him all this money just to properly not utilize him. And I understand that he just came back from an injury, but I mean, this isn't the first time that Le'Veon Bell has been upset with his lack of involvement in the New York Jets offense. So I think that the New York Jets need to just save themselves the headache and get rid of Le'Veon Bell. I mean, if you're not going to get rid of Adam Gates, at least get rid of Le'Veon Bell. Because, I mean, your offense doesn't look better with them, and it didn't look better without him neither. So, I mean, at this point, what is Le'Veon Bell actually doing that's helping the offense out? Nothing at all. So, I mean, I think that it's time for the New York Jets just to give up on this whole Le'Veon Bell experiment. This is why you don't pay halfbacks big money unless you really know that this guy is going to be a fit in this offense. He was felt from the start. I mean, the New York Jets didn't have good offense, which I told a lot of New York Jets fans. I said, look, Le'Veon Bell was not going to rush for 1,000 rush, uh, rushing yards behind that New York Jets offense. It simply was going to happen. And I didn't believe that Adam Gates was going to be able to utilize him. Okay. And so far, I've been right. So I just think that it's time for the New York Jets to give up. At this point, you're 0-5. It doesn't look like you have any plans on winning anytime soon. Sam Darnold's hurt. We don't know when he's coming back. So, I mean, if you're the New York Jets at this point, you might as well just go ahead, tank the season, get rid of Le'Veon Bell, try to get a draft pick for him, and go from there, man. Because at this point, Le'Veon Bell wasn't doing anything and the New York Jets, when they had him, he wasn't all that big of a factor. I think it's time for the New York Jets just to go ahead, scrap this whole Le'Veon Bell experiment, and go ahead and trade him. This is why you don't pay big money for halfbacks in the NFL. LSU is going to be heading on the road to Gainesville to take on the number 10th ranked Florida Gators this weekend. This game is going to be on ESPN for 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time kickoff. Now, for Florida... You suffered a loss to Texas A&M last weekend, 41-38. Now, initially, I picked Florida with the victory in my prediction video, but I said that I would not be surprised if Texas A&M was able to pull off the upset. And the reason why I said that was because, simply, I did not trust Florida's defense. And I felt like if Florida would lose the game, it would be because of their defense not performing well. And that ended up happening. I mean, Texas A&M was able to do whatever they wanted to do on offense. I mean, they were really good throwing the football with Kellen Mond. Kellen Mond actually had one of the best games of his 
college career at Texas A&M. He was really good throwing the football. Um, made a lot of big plays on third down for Texas A&M to keep the drives going. And the running game for Texas A&M was really good. Florida could not stop the run game to save their life. And despite the fact that Florida's offense played fairly well, I mean, Texas A&M was able to get a couple of key stops. And all they needed was the ball back, and Florida's defense couldn't do nothing to stop them. So you got LSU, on the other hand, that's suffering from similar struggles on the defense side of football, like Florida. I mean, they lost to Missouri 45-41, to and their defense played as bad as you can play. Okay, so I mean, going into this game, the question is going to be which team's defense is actually going to be able to show up if any one of these two teams' defenses even shows up anyway. And I mean, if they do, I mean... Which team is going to win the turn of a battle? Because anytime you have two teams that have two bad defenses, it all comes down to which team is going to be able to get the key turnovers or which team is going to be able to get the key stop. Okay, so I mean, whoever wins the turnover battle in this game is most likely going to end up being the victor. So if whoever wins this game is plus two in the turnover margin, they're most likely going to end up winning this game. So whichever team wins the turnover battle is most likely going to end up winning this game. Also, which team will be able to stop the run? Now, Florida couldn't stop the run to save their life last week against Texas A&M. I mean, Texas A&M was running the ball down their throats. And for LSU, man, like, I question their ability to not only stop the pass, but if they can even stop the run as well. So, I mean, who can stop the run game? Because the run game is going to be really important in this game because, listen, if you have two teams that have two bad defenses, if you're able to get one stop and you're able to run the football, control time possession, and keep the other team's offense off the field, you're going to be in a really good position to win the game. So, I mean, stop the run game is going to be really critical for either one of these teams. Now, I feel like Florida's the better running team going into this game than what LSU is because I don't really think LSU has really been all that great running the football this season so far. Now, Florida... I mean, Florida does have the ability to run the football. I just don't think they really take advantage of it because they're so potent throwing the football through the air with Kyle Trask and all these talented wide receivers that they have. But Florida can't run the football if they need to. So, I mean, whichever team is able to run the football, I think they're going to also be at the advantage as well because they're going to be able to control time possession and keep the other team's offense off the field. And also for LSU, can you limit the big plays in the passing game for Florida? Because Florida has a really explosive offense. I mean, you got guys who can just get big plays out of the butt. Like um, Kadarius Tony, for example, he had a big play against Texas A&M. So, I mean, when it comes to being in Florida in this high-powered offense of Florida, you have to be able to keep everything in front of you because you don't want any of these wide receivers breaking off like a 50-yard touchdown, things like that. Because these wide receivers from Florida, if they get the ball in their hands, they're a threat to take it to the house every single time. So, for LSU, also, how are you going to stop tight end Kyle Pitts? Kyle Pitts has been... The best player in college football, in my opinion. I mean, when this dude gets in the red zone, he's doggone near unstoppable to stop. And when you look at how LSU's defense has played, I mean, if you want to win this game, you got to take away Kyle Pitts. Now, even if you do take away Kyle Pitts, you got other players at that wide receiver position that you have to worry about stopping. But I mean, Kyle Pitts is the best player on this Florida offense. This is who they want to give the ball to, especially in the red zone. If you take away Kyle Pitts in the red zone, then you're going to force... 
contrast to find other players to throw the football to. So I think it's really important that LSU tries to find a way to take Kyle Trask away in this game. And if they can't take him away completely, at least be able to stop him in the red zone because this dude has been a monster in the red zone. So, I mean, pretty much he has scored the majority of Florida's offensive touchdowns when they get inside the 20. So I think it's really important that they try to find a way to take away Kyle Pitts, especially in the red zone. Like, let him do whatever he does. But once you get inside the red zone, triple team and quadruple team, do whatever you have to do to make sure that he doesn't beat you when your team gets inside the 20. Now, for Florida, on the other hand, I mean, with the way their defense has played, are you going to be able to stop wide receiver Terrence Marshall? That's going to be another question because Terrence Marshall went off against Missouri last week, and he is pretty much LSU's best player that they have on the offensive side of football. Now, I just got off the phone with one of my friends. He is a Florida Gator fan, and I was asking him, I said, hey, what does Florida have to do to win this game? And the first thing he said was that, Todd Grantham, the defensive coordinator for Florida, needs to get better at calling the plays on defense because a lot of his play calling has been a little bit too... He's been getting the two... A lot of his play calling has been a little bit questionable at times, and sometimes he feels like Todd Grantham gets a little bit too cute, which I will agree with. Now, for Florida, you have a couple of key guys coming back on the defense side of the football, which is well needed. You got Kyrie Campbell, and you got another guy coming back, Chris Bogey, I believe his name is. So, I mean, with those two guys back, hopefully that helps improve the Florida defense. And also, can Florida get a pass rush? Because Florida's pass rush hasn't been great at all. I mean, you lost Jonathan Greenyard and Zabari Zunega to the NFL um, in this past year's NFL draft, and it doesn't really look like Florida has any guys who are going to be able to step in and replace those guys so far. So, I mean, Florida... I mean, you really have to be able to get pressure on Miles Brennan if you want to win this game. And the same thing can be said for LSU as well. So, I mean, both these two teams, it's all going to come down to which team's defense is going to be able to get off the field on third down because LSU's defense wasn't good on third down against Missouri last week. And Florida wasn't good on third down, neither against Texas A&M. I believe Texas A&M was pretty much really good on third down. Like, Kellen Mond played really well on third down. So, I mean, for both these two teams, man, I mean, it's all going to come down to which team's defense is going to be able to get the big play or get the big turnover that matters the most when the game is on the line. And, I mean, it's really weird because this is kind of like a preview of a Big 12 game because in the Big 12, you don't really see a lot of offense, not a lot of defense, but this is the SEC we're talking about here. And I know that LSU lost a good amount of talent to the NFL draft, but I didn't expect that their defense would have this big of a drop-off this year. And for Florida, like, also the same thing for them, man. So, I mean, really, both of these two teams need to try to find their identities on defense and get this thing taken care of. So, I'm going to end up taking Florida to win this game. I think Florida should bounce back I think Florida is the better team than LSU going into this game. And although LSU is pretty good offensively, I just think that Florida's defense, um, even if they don't show up, they should be able to get a couple of team, a couple of big turnovers when it matters the most. And for LSU's defense, man, I think that LSU's defense is worse than Florida's defense because with Florida, I mean you can blame it on injuries, okay? Now, I know LSU has a couple of guys who are pretty banged up as well, but I mean, for LSU, man, their defense has played a lot worse than Florida's defense has played so far this season. And I know they're pretty evenly matched, but I do think that Florida's defense gets a slight edge over LSU's defense because I believe if Florida would have played Missouri last week, 
I don't think they would have gave up 40 points to Missouri. So, I mean, I think Florida's defense gets a slight edge in this game. I think Florida is the better team than LSU going in. And I'm going to take Florida to get this victory here. I think that Dan Moreland and Florida bounces back from that loss they suffered to the hands of Texas A&M. And really, they were really close to winning that game as well. So, I mean, when you look at LSU right now, LSU is kind of reeling right now. I think their defense has a lot more room for improvement than what Florida's defense needs to do. And for Florida, another thing is Marco Wilson. Like, what the hell is going on with film? Like, Marco Wilson has not played good this year. He's going to have to step up his game against LSU if they want to win this game. So, I mean, for Florida, I think they win this game 42 to 34 is my final score prediction in this game. I think this is going to be a pretty high-scoring game. I don't really think we're going to see a lot of defense at all. But I do think that Florida's defense is slightly better than LSU's defense. I think that Florida should be able to get a couple of turnovers, maybe a turnover or two to win this game, and maybe a big stop on third down to get the ball back to your offense. And I think that that's all they really need to do to win this game here because I don't think LSU's defense is going to stop the bleeding at all. And I think Florida should be able to pick up this victory here. Give me Florida for the victory. Texas A&M is going to be taking on Mike Leach in Mississippi State. This game is slated to take place 4 p.m. Eastern time on the SEC Network. And for Texas A&M, they have a lot of momentum and a lot of confidence riding into this game as they pulled off the upset last week against Florida, 41-38. And Texas A&M put on a clinic offensively. Now, I understand that Florida's defense has been terrible, but I mean, Kellen Ma played the best game I've ever seen him play for Texas A&M his whole entire college football career. I mean, he was lights out against Florida, especially on third down. Like, Florida's defense had no answer for Texas A&M on third down. Kellen Ma was really exceptional last week. And this running game for Texas A&M was also really good as well. And for Mississippi State, ever since they defeated LSU a couple of weeks back for their first win of the season, they have taken a lot of steps back. And I think the big thing for Mike Leach heading into his game is going to be what are going to be the adjustments that he makes at offense? If he makes any adjustments at all. Because this is the difference between playing in the SEC and playing in the Pac-12. You see, the head coach for Washington said that it's not all that hard to prepare for Mike Leach's offense. Because you can expect him to do the same thing that he's been doing for the last couple of years. Okay? He doesn't really change up his offensive mentality. So going into this game... I mean, Mike Leach has to be able to make some adjustments on offense because you're not going to win a lot of games in the SEC if you keep on doing what you're doing. Because at this point, everybody knows how you can stop this air raid offense. You know that they're going to come in, they're going to try to throw the ball 50, 60 times a game, and they're not really going to put a lot of emphasis on the run game. So how do you stop that? Well, you just play zone coverage all game. That's what Arkansas did. That's why Arkansas was able to defeat Mississippi State. So I think for Mike Leach, I would like to see him make some adjustments on offense. Now, when I say adjustments on offense, I don't mean particularly just changing his whole entire offensive scheme, nothing drastic like that. But I would like to see... Mike Leach put more emphasis on running the football. You have Kalen Hill. Kalen Hill is the best halfback in the SEC, one of the best halfbacks in college football. And you're not really using, you're not really utilizing his skill set all that much. Like, yeah, you're lining him out wide, you're getting him involved in the passing game, but you also need to be able to get him involved in the running game as well. And I think Mike Leach needs to realize that. He needs to realize that, hey, I'm in the SEC now. I'm in one of the best conferences, not the best conference in college football. Okay, this isn't the Pac-12. In the SEC, these coaches are really good. 
they know how to stop this air raid attack, so you need to be balanced, okay? Mike Leach needs to have way more balance. Now, it's understandable if you want to be a pass-heavy team. You can be a pass-first team, but even then, LSU last year, they were a team that really liked to air the football a lot. But even then, they were able to be balanced at times, run the football with Clyde Eris-Hilaire. Even Florida, for example, this year, they have a very great passing attack with Kyle Trask and all of those talented wide receivers that they got there. But they can still run the football if they have to. Same thing for Alabama with Najee Harris. They were able to run the football. So, I mean, for Mississippi State and Mike Leach to have success in the SEC, they need to be able to run the football. You're not going to just win a lot of games in the SEC by throwing the football 50 and 60 times a game. You have to be or have to have a little bit of balance. So I would like to see Mike Leach make some adjustments on offense heading into this game and I would like to see him put more emphasis on running the football with Kalen Hill, utilizing all of Kalen Hill's skill set instead of just lining him out wide. So another thing is going to be can Mississippi State stop the run game because Texas A&M, in my opinion, regardless of what the stats may show, I think Texas A&M has one of the best rushing attacks in all of college football. Now, they may not be top 10 or top 5 in rushing yards per game or whatever. I don't really care about the stats. Based on what I've seen out of Texas A&M in the first couple of games this season, I think that they are really good running the football. They showed it last week against Florida, and I think there is a good possibility that they could show it this week against Mississippi State. And I mean, Mississippi State, it's really important that they are able to stop the run game because if not, Mississippi State is going to control time possession. They're going to keep Mike, Mike Leach's offense off the field. And I mean... They really won't have an opportunity to do all that much. So I really think that's really important for Mississippi State to stop the run game of Texas A&M heading into this game. Because if you stop the run game, then you're going to have to force Texas A&M to beat you through the air, which they can do that like we saw last week. But I think that this Texas A&M team is a team that likes to be balanced. They like to run the football. I think that they're that run the football is their biggest strength of offense. So if you take that away, then you force them to kind of switch up their game plan. Now, for Texas A&M, it's going to be, how are you going to handle this air raid? Because you have to be able to get pressure on KJ Costillo. And a big reason why Mississippi State had a lot of success against LSU was because, first of all, LSU secondary didn't play well. But on top of that, their defensive line wasn't able to get a lot of pressure on KJ Costillo. KJ Costillo was being able to sit back there, you know, drop back, make his reads, and throw the football wherever he wanted to. So, I mean, for Texas A&M, I think it's going to be really important that you have to be able to get pressure on K.J. Costillo. And that was kind of my knock on Texas A&M um, last week against Florida. Like, I know they played a really good game, but I think that they pretty much could have had a more convincing victory if they were able to get more consistent pressure on Kyle Trask and that Florida offense. So, I mean, for Texas A&M, you have to be able to get pressure on K.J. Costillo. And for Texas A&M... You have to be able to get the ball to Kalen Hill, man. And I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think that Kalen Hill is the best player on this Mississippi State offense. And I don't really think that Mike Leach has utilized him to the best of his abilities. Like, I know Mike Leach likes to throw the football. That's what he's known for, the air raid offense. But when you have a player like Kalen Hill, you can't, you can't afford to switch up the philosophy of your offense just a little bit. I think Kalen Hill needs to at least have at least 15 or 16 rushing attempts every single game for Mississippi State, okay? And Mike Leach needs to make sure that's able to happen because you just can't utilize Kalen Hill by lining him out wide and things like that. You need to utilize all of his skill set, all of his ability, similar to what Clemson is doing with Travis Etienne. So, I mean, Kalen Hill, I think he needs way more touches. I think he needs to be utilized more than just a pass catching back. 
and Mike Leach's system. I think Mike Leach needs to run him way more than what he has been doing so far. And for A&M, you have to be able to stop Kalen Hill because Kalen Hill is the best person on this um, Mississippi State offense, and they're going to want to try to get him the ball a lot by throwing him the football or handing it off to him. So you need to be able to stop him. So ultimately, I'm taking A&M with the victory. I think that Mississippi State could pull off the upset, but, I mean, I'm taking Texas A&M because I don't really think that Texas A&M is going to have all that difficulty struggling to stop this Mississippi State air raid offense. Now, even though they did struggle defensively against Florida, Florida is different from Mike Leach because Florida is balanced. They're just not a run-trick pony. Like, they just want to throw the ball 50, 60 times a game. Like, they can run the football if they need to. But Mike Leach doesn't really put a lot of emphasis on aren't running the football all that much. He's not really all that balanced. So, I mean, for Texas a and if you're just able to play zone coverage and replicate what Arkansas was able to do, then, I mean, you have a pretty good chance of winning this game, man. So, I mean, I think Mississippi State does have the potential to pull off this upset, but I strongly doubt it. It just really depends on how this defense for Texas a and ends up playing. Now, they may surrender a couple of points, but I don't think it's going to be anything all that major. I don't think they're going to give up, like, 50 points to Mississippi State or something like that. So, I'll take... I'll I'll take Texas a and with the victory. I think Texas a and gets the victory. 41-31 to 31 is my final score prediction in this game. I'm taking Texas a and The Atlanta Falcons have officially fired head coach Dan Quinn and general manager Thomas Dimitrov. Now, I'm not one to come on here and call for people's jobs, come on here and say that coaches need to get fired, But, I mean, I think it is fair to say that this move is a long time coming for the Atlanta Falcons and Dan Quinn. And Dan Quinn started off his coaching career in Atlanta on a pretty high note. I mean, he took the Falcons to the Super Bowl. They ended up losing to the divisional round year after. So, I mean, Dan Quinn had a lot of success in his first few years for the Atlanta Falcons. But ever since then, everything has pretty much been downhill. And, I mean, Dan Quinn... The fact that Atlanta just blows so many leads late in a full quarter, I mean, that's a sign of not being properly coached. Because one thing that you will always notice about some of the best coaches in the NFL, like Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin, Andy Reid, you will very seldom see those elite coaches blow big leads in a full quarter. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but I mean, you don't really see it all that often. And I mean, when you look at Dan Quinn, man, I think that Dan Quinn was a coach who had a lot of potential and wasn't really able to live up to it. And like I said earlier, he started off his career in Atlanta really good. I mean, like I said, they went to the Super Bowl, even though they lost, they went to the divisional round. But I mean, one thing about Dan Quinn was the fact that this guy was a defensive-minded coach and the Atlanta Falcons only had a top 10 defense, I believe, one time out of the six years that he was the head coach for them. And that simply isn't good, okay? Because I say this so many times, I'm going to say it again. If you bring in a guy who is supposed to be an offensive-minded coach, the offense should never really be bad. If you bring in a guy who is a defensive-minded coach, the defense should never be the worst part of the team. But during Dan Quinn's tenure in Atlanta, the defense has not really been all that great. So, I mean... It's no surprise that Atlanta has chose to part ways with Dan Quinn and general manager Thomas Dimitra because at this point, you need a fresh start, you need a clean house. And I mean, 
my guy juice alert if you guys haven't subscribed to juice alert make sure that you check him out but i was going back and forth for him in the comment section we was talking about should the atlanta falcons decide to just you know rebuild the whole team trade away everybody and just start over and i said no because if the atlanta falcons can find the right coach i believe that this is a playoff caliber roster Okay, I mean, I know Matt Ryan is getting up there in age. He's getting old. Julio Jones is getting up there as well. But, I mean, you can still win with Matt Ryan. Like, you don't have to trade him away. Okay, like, Matt Ryan at this point in his career, he's not like what he was a couple of years back when he won NFL MVP. But, I mean, you can still win a Super Bowl with Matt Ryan if you give him the right coach. And, I mean, this Falcons defense still has a lot of talent as well. And, I mean, I know they're struggling with injuries, but when the Atlanta Falcons defense is fully healthy, this is a really talented team. So the fact that the Falcons have underachieved the way they have with the talent that they have in place, even with the injuries that they've had so far, that just goes to show you that this is a team that isn't really all that well coached. If you ever wonder why a team with talent misses the playoffs or why a team with talent always fails to meet expectations, it's because of coaching. So, I mean, for Atlanta, you clean house. Now the question is, what is going to be the future? And what are going to be some potential head coaching candidates that Atlanta could potentially reach out to? Now, I know a lot of people are probably going to say Eric Bellinami. And, I mean, I think Eric Bellinami would be a okay fit in Atlanta. But I think he would be a better fit in Houston with Deshaun Watson. I think Robert Sala could be a pretty good hire for Atlanta, but I don't really know how many people are still high on him when you look at how the 49ers season has gotten off so far. So, I mean, I don't really know if people are still high on Robert Sala, but I mean, if Atlanta can find the right coach and bring in the right general manager, I mean, this could be a playoff team right away, okay? And for Atlanta, if you're approaching the NFL draft, you can look at it two ways. You can either get your quarterback of the future, let your quarterback sit behind Matt Ryan for a year or two until Matt Ryan decides to hang it up. Or you can bring in some more help on the defensive side of the football, maybe draft another cornerback, maybe get another safety or something like that. So, I mean, it's several ways that the Atlanta Foxes can approach this. But, I mean, nobody's really surprised that Dan Quinn has officially been fired by the Atlanta Falcons. It is a long time coming. And, I mean, Dan Quinn was a guy who was one of the architects behind one of the greatest defenses of all time with the Seattle Seahawks when he was their defensive coordinator. So, I mean, the fact that Atlanta has only really had a good defense, really maybe only one or two seasons out of his six years being their head coach, just shows the fact that Dan Quinn wasn't really all that great. And, I mean, when you bring in a guy who is specialized in a particular um, side of the ball and they don't really live up to that name, I mean, you can't really expect the team to really be all that great. Dan Quinn was a defensive-minded coach, and the Atlanta Falcons only had a top-10 defense like one or two times during Dan Quinn's career. So, I mean, when you're not living up to that model that you was brought in to be, I mean, you can't expect all that much success. So, I mean, I'm not really surprised Atlanta parted ways with Dan Quinn. A lot of people felt this move should have made should have been made last year or even the year before that. But, I mean, I can understand. One thing that I have to give my hats off to Atlanta for is being extremely patient, okay? Because a lot of people can come on here and say that Atlanta should have been parted ways with Dan Quinn. But, I mean, a lot of people don't understand how hard it is when you bring in a new coach to reestablish the culture and how long it really takes. So, I give my hats off to Atlanta for being patient. But, I mean, Atlanta just said enough is enough, and they decided to part ways with Dan Quinn. So, 
You guys let me know down in the comment section if you guys are watching this on YouTube who you guys think Atlanta should bring in to be their next head coach. I know a lot of people are probably going to say Eric Bellinami, but I don't really think he's going to end up going to Atlanta. I think he will end up going to Houston with Deshaun Watson because I think that's a better fit because Deshaun Watson with his skill set, you can do a lot of things. No knock against Matt Ryan, but he doesn't really possess the mobility like a guy like Deshaun Watson has. Now, maybe if Atlanta goes ahead and they get a guy like a Trey Lance or Justin Fields, maybe that will intrigue Eric Bellinami, but I think he's most likely going to end up landing with Deshaun Watson in the Houston Texans. So you guys let me know. Thank you guys for watching. If you guys are listening to this on YouTube, if you guys aren't, make sure that you guys go ahead and check out the podcast. Every single video that's uploaded on YouTube, you can also listen to it on the audio platforms that wherever you get your podcast from, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Thank you guys for listening and watching wherever you guys are and take care. So the biggest rumor circulating around the NFL world today is that the Washington football team, according to Jason LaFloria, is expected to trade Dwayne Haskins. Now, there are strong expectations that Dwayne Haskins will be traded before the NFL trade deadline. Now, the reason for this is because unless you've been living underneath the rock for the last couple of days, Ron Rivera and Washington decided to bench quarterback Dwayne Haskins. And not only did he get benched, but he went from QB1 to QB3. He's not even getting reps in practice. So, to me, it looks like Washington is pretty much done with Dwayne Haskins. Okay? And what this shows me is that Dwayne Haskins wasn't really all that much wanted in Washington from the first place. Okay? And Ron Rivera... And his coaching staff is fairly new to Washington. Okay, you guys have to understand that Ron Rivera did not draft Dwayne Haskins. Therefore, you're not going to have a lot of patience for a guy that you didn't ask for. Okay, if Ron Rivera would have drafted Dwayne Haskins, then maybe Dwayne Haskins would still be starting in the NFL right now for Washington. But the fact that he did not draft Dwayne Haskins... You're not going to have a lot of patience for a guy that you didn't bring in. So he goes from QB1 to QB3, okay? And now there's even more speculation coming around that Washington is expected to trade him, okay? And the rumor is that Dan Snyder is really the guy who forced Washington's hand in selecting Dwayne Haskins in the NFL draft a couple of years back. Now, I believe that there is a lot of truth to the story. Now, be it, this is a rumor, so we have to take everything with a grain of salt. We're, we can just speculate at this point. But I think there is a lot of truth to this rumor, okay? Because, to be honest, I don't really think Jay Gruden was all that sold on Dwayne Haskins, okay? I'm going to be honest with you. I think that Jay Gruden was kind of forced into that pick because he was on the hot seat and maybe he felt like Dwayne Haskins could have came in there and helped save his job maybe. But I mean, even then, I don't really believe that Jay Gruden really wanted Dwayne Haskins because if he did, I think that Dwayne Haskins would have started day one because you don't draft a guy in the first round when you're on the hot seat to ride the bench for a couple of games. Like if you're on the hot seat, the quarterback that you draft should be starting day one. So I do believe that Dan Snyder kind of had his hand involved in the decision to draft Dwayne Haskins. I don't really believe that Jay Gruden was completely 100% on board with drafting Dwayne Haskins because when you're on the hot seat, 
You shouldn't be drafting a quarterback to sit behind and learn for a couple of games. Like, no, if you're on the hot seat, the quarterback that you draft should be starting day one because you need him to perform to save your job. So all of the signs points to Dwayne Haskins being unwanted in Washington. And I think that Dwayne Haskins would be better off if he got traded somewhere else. Now, I'm not going to say that Dwayne Haskins is going to be a better player if he plays for a team like Pittsburgh or whoever he gets traded to because a lot of you guys got to understand. A lot of people always say that JT, Dwayne Haskins, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen would be better if they played for a team like Pittsburgh or New England. A lot of you guys have to remember that New England and Pittsburgh have their fair share of misses when it comes to quarterbacks as well. I don't know if a lot of you guys remember Landry Jones, but Landry Jones was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers a couple of years back to be Big Ben's potential successor. And as we already know, Landry Jones, in my opinion, is one of the worst backup quarterbacks in NFL history. You had Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, and you wasn't even able to do anything with them. Okay, so... Also remember, the New England Patriots drafted Ryan Mallett. Ryan Mallett was supposed to be the potential successor to Tom Brady, and we saw how the Ryan Mallett experience went with New England. Okay, so the Patriots and the Steelers both have their fair share of misses when it comes to the quarterback position. For all we know, Dwayne Haskins could go to a team like the Patriots or Pittsburgh and still not be a starting caliber quarterback. He may not ever develop into the quarterback that a lot of people expected out of him when he was coming out of Ohio State, okay? And a lot of you guys have to remember that Dwayne Haskins, the biggest knock on him coming out of Ohio State was the fact that he didn't have a lot of experience playing college football. He only started one year at Ohio State. So Dwayne Haskins is still pretty raw to adapting to the game and the speed of the NFL. So, I mean, I can't really be upset with the fact that Ron Rivera decided to bench Dwayne Haskins. I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, they benched Dwayne Haskins and their offense still didn't do anything. I don't really think that's the point. I just think that Ron Rivera is kind of fed up with Dwayne Haskins. And I don't think that it's all because of Dwayne Haskins not being all that great on the field. I also think that Dwayne Haskins' personality just may not be what Ron Rivera wants to put up with it. Okay, you can't work with a guy who you don't like. So there's more to it than just Dwayne Haskins put on the field. And I know a lot of people want to say that Dwayne Haskins needed more time, which I will agree with. But like I said earlier, when you're Ron Rivera and you're a coach that's trying to win now and you still have an opportunity to win the division, you don't have time to wait for Dwayne Haskins to get this thing going. Okay, and plus the fact that Ron Rivera isn't really in love with Dwayne Haskins' personality and Dwayne Haskins kind of rubs him the wrong way isn't good neither. So it's more to the story than just Dwayne Haskins getting benched because he wasn't good enough. Okay, and a lot of people are going to come out here and make excuses for Dwayne Haskins' play. They're going to be like, oh, JT he had no weapons, he had a terrible off the line, and that is true. But let's not act like... Dwayne Haskins didn't have any wide receivers who weren't getting open at all, okay? Because it's been several times you can go back and watch the games and watch the film that guys have been open and Dwayne Haskins even either overthrew him or he just didn't see him. So Dwayne Haskins isn't perfect. He is a developmental project, okay? So he needs to go to a team like New Orleans or a team like Pittsburgh and learn for not just one season but two or three years and get some really good development. And even then, Dwayne Haskins could sit on the bench for two, three years and still learn, and he's still not. he still may never, ever be great. You get what I'm saying? So, I mean, 
Washington is already scouting quarterbacks. This is another rumor that just came out. And they are already scouting several top quarterbacks in next year's upcoming NFL draft. So, I mean, as of right now, it looks like Dwayne Haskins' time in Washington is done. Which is unfortunate because we saw the same thing happen with Josh Rosen in Arizona. They only gave him one year. And even then, Josh Rosen wasn't even supposed to touch the field week one or season one of his NFL career. But something happened with Sam Bradford. He ended up having to start. So, I mean, really unfortunate for Dwayne Haskins the season, the way that this season has went for him so far. And, I mean, he doesn't deserve all the blame. Like, the team around him hasn't been great. The offensive line has been terrible. The wide receiver core, aside from Ted McLaurin, isn't all that good. But, I mean, Dwayne Haskins does deserve a good amount of criticism because if Joe Burrow played for Washington, you can make the argument that Washington's offense would be a lot better than what it is right now because Joe Burrow, although he does have a pretty good group of wide receivers, he has a terrible offensive line. So, I mean, if you put Joe Burrow on Washington, that's pretty much a better football team than what they are right now, in my opinion. So, I mean, Dwayne Haskins has a lot of room to grow and develop. But I do think that at this point, he does need a fresh start. So, like I said, this is a rumor. So, you have to take everything that I'm saying for a grain of salt. It may be true. It may not be true. Washington may still view Dwayne Haskins as the quarterback of the future. But, I mean, I don't think that you would demote your franchise quarterback of the future from QB1 to QB3. And I think Ron Rivera is pretty much done with Dwayne Haskins.